Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month on our first episode for 2021, we're talking to Carissa Velis, author and academic. This episode was recorded early back in October 2020, and we chat about AI as a moving target, transformative nature of power, how data is toxic, the business of social media and the end of the data economy, dangers of privacy violations, differential privacy, Carissa's new book, Privacy is Power, and much more. If you enjoy this episode, find more episodes at machine-ethics.net. If you'd like to contact us, you can contact at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter, machine underscore ethics, or on Instagram, a machine ethics podcast. You can also support us at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thank you so much and hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Garissa. Um, if you could just briefly introduce yourself and who you are and what you do. Thank you, Ben. My name is Carissa Velis. I'm an associate professor at the University of Oxford at the Institute for Ethics in AI, and I'm a fellow at Hartford College. And I work on privacy and digital ethics more generally, in particular, the ethics of AI. Awesome. So um, we have spoken previously before. So the first question we always ask Carissa on the podcast is about the nature of AI. Um, so to you, what is AI? Or AI is difficult to define because it's a moving target. So famously, whenever something becomes part of main mainstream, what used to be almost magic so suddenly becomes just everyday things and it's not considered AI anymore. <laughs> but generally, AI is the effort to make intelligence um, with computers. So to make computers intelligent, as intelligent as human beings. Yeah, so I guess it's it's a relative thing to like, because you get this sticky question of what is intelligence, but it's the kind of um, general intelligence of you and me doing things in the world, making actions, that sort of thing, um, but then artificially creating that. Exactly. And it is really tricky because we've already created some kinds of intelligence that are much smarter than human beings. So, for instance, typically a computer can add and subtract and do all kinds of computational uh, tasks much better and much faster than human beings. But at the same time, uh, it can't do things that for us are, is re are really simple, but are actually quite complex, like tying your shoelaces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good example. Um, because, I mean, I wouldn't be able to um calculate a prime number up to you know the hundredth one very very quickly but i can damn right do my shoelaces up quickly, <laughs> so that's that's one for <laughs> team human there <laughs> exactly um so um you have a book out which i have uh, mostly read i have to say that i um i've not read the conclusion which is embarrassing um and one other chapter because i had to speed read it to get to this interview uh, full disclosure, but I read pretty much everything else and made some notes. So um, check out Privacy is Power, Why and How You Should Take Back Control of Your Data. Um, so Carissa, is privacy power? Definitely. One of the things that I uh, I was very impressed by recently in my research was this insight by Bertrand Russell, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, who argues that we should think about power like energy. One of the characteristics of energy is that it can transform itself from one kind into another. And so does power. 
So if you have enough economic power, you can buy yourself political power through, for instance, buying um, lobbying very hard or buying politicians and so on. If you have enough political power, then you can transform that into economic power by making sure people hire you or you can transform it into military power. So one of the things that we have been surprised by in the digital age is a new kind of power that is born out of data and data analysis. And this power is related to the ability to predict and influence behavior. And just as like the other kinds of power, it can transform itself from one kind into another. So if you have enough of this kind of predictive power through data or data power, you can transform it into economic power because you can either sell the data or you can sell access to people and access to people's attention. Or you can transform it into political power because you're so big, like Google and Facebook, that you, can, you have really uh, big lobbying muscles and so on. And because we weren't so familiar with this kind of power, it, it crept up on us. And we didn't identify, for instance, monopolies when they were growing because we're too used to economic power. So we thought that the litmus test for whether something was a monopoly was if it could really uh, up their prices and not lose any customers. But it turns out that companies like Facebook and Google are supposedly free in that you don't pay money, but you pay something else, you pay your data. And it didn't occur to us that that kind of our old litmus test was not going to work for new kinds of power. So really, the litmus test should be uh, something more general, like a company being able to have exploitative policies, whether it's too high a price or collecting too much of your data or other kinds of bad policies without losing any users or customers. Yeah, so there's, there's this kind of overarching idea that um, we should uh, take back control of our privacy. So it's in the, in the title, we should um, value the, the data that we kind of trail behind us, but also we actively produce, right? And we actively put in places um, and one of the really nice um, kind of overarching ideas in the book um, is that data is toxic. So I wondered if you could just go into that briefly. Yes. One of the things that I'm trying to change is the mentality that privacy is only a personal choice or an individual matter. And I argue that, no, it's actually a political one and it's much more of a collective problem than it is an individual one. So another thing about power that we were, we were just uh, discussing is that if, if we give too much of our data to companies, it shouldn't surprise us when they're um, designing the rules of society and they're basically leading our lives. If we give too much of our data to governments, then we risk sliding into authoritarianism. We can only maintain a healthy and strong democracy if the bulk of power and the bulk of data stays with citizens. And one way to think about this is that data is a kind of toxic asset. And I use the analogy um, to asbestos. Asbestos is a very interesting material because it's very cheap, it's very easy to mine, and it's incredibly helpful. Among many of its qualities is that it's very hard for it to catch fire. And it's also very durable. So we have been using it in buildings, in um, cars, in plumbing, in all kinds of, of structures. 
And it turns out that it's incredibly toxic. There's no safe threshold of exposure and hundreds of thousands of people die every year from cancer because of asbestos exposure. In the same way, personal data is very cheap, is very easy to mine, it's very helpful, but it turns out it's toxic. It's really dangerous stuff. And it's toxic for individuals, it's toxic for institutions, and especially toxic for society. For individuals, it, it's exposing us to all kinds of harms. So it's exposing us to harms like data theft, um, like public humiliation, even extortion, many times identity theft, so people stealing your credit card and using it or stealing your identity and committing crimes in your name. And it is exposing us to discrimination, to all kinds of harms that, is ma that, that are making our lives worse off. Regarding institutions, data is toxic because it's a liability. Every piece of personal data is a potential leak, a potential lawsuit, and we're seeing it now with, for example, companies like British Airways, who um, got fined £183 million uh, before the COVID pandemic um, for losing data in a data breach. Uh, the, the most recent one was, uh, I believe it was Hilton Hotels, uh, again, got fined a huge amount of money because of a data breach. And of course, Cambridge Analytica had to close down and so on. And sometimes it's not only that it's very pricey, but it also it's a huge loss of, of face. And then finally, data is toxic for society. It's undermining equality and it's undermining democracy. So you and I are not being treated as equal citizens. We are being shown different opportunities online. We are paying different prices for the same product. Uh, we're not being treated as, as equals. And it's undermining democracy because it's fueling fake news, it's polarizing society, it's fragmenting the public sphere. It's, it's having all these kinds of consequences that are so toxic that we would be much better off without personal data being bought and sold. Yeah, and I, I guess um, from a kind of like a technical side, if you simply didn't have the information um, or some sort of marker uh, or just like category of a person coming to your website then you wouldn't be able to tailor those adverts so you wouldn't be able to tailor that information to those different types of people because you just wouldn't have that information to be able to to make those kind of systems work at that point right so taking back control of that um privacy or just not imp not you know doing those kind of techniques means that um hopefully we get to a more equitable situation right Exactly. Just like you don't tell your prospective employer certain things like what your re religion you profess or whether you have small kids or whether you're planning to have kids or all kinds of things that could uh, count against you unfairly because they shouldn't count. Well, in the same way, we shouldn't tell hundreds of, of companies our most intimate details like what we buy, where we live, who are our friends, who's our family, our political tendencies, our sexual tendencies. They don't need to know these things to treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Yeah. Um, so th my, my main problem about this conversation that we're going to have today is that I mostly totally agree with you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I almost have to kind of like um, take the um, devil's advocate position because I, you know, I, I read the book and I'm kind of going, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, um, nodding my head as I'm, I'm reading about it. So it's, um, 
<laughs> it's difficult for me to kind of challenge you on these ones um, because I I somewhat do believe in the fact that it is unnecessary to one do a lot of these practices, but um, secondly, just to to treat people in this way. Basically, you know, it's it's really uh, comes down to um, you know how we are as groups of people in organisations treating hundreds of millions of people and it is it's it's fascinating that um just within the abstraction of a private organization that we can do some really horrible and evil things um it's really appalling when when you look at the categories that for instance data brokers use or even ad marketing companies use it's it's horrible so it's like people who have been abused uh people who have been the victims of rape um, people who are HIV positive, people who suffer from premature ejaculation or impotence. Like these are the categories as, that these data vultures are using to target us and to exploit our, our vulnerabilities. It's really quite appalling. Yeah, and there's no accountability there because, of course, it's really difficult to then see that stuff right in the real world because we are getting presented with different information everywhere. Um, exactly and you might not you you don't know what data they have on you it might be inaccurate and very important decisions about your life are being uh, made on the basis of this data whether you get a loan whether you get a job whether you get an apartment um how much you wait in a particular waiting list including like just customer service your whole life is being affected by the this data that you can't even access yeah. And I think it's, um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you know, when um, since GDPR came in and it became somewhat easier to request your information, um, I requested my Facebook information and it is, um, it's massive, you know, <laughs> you get this, this uh, zip file with um, obviously all the, the actual reason that I wanted to do that was so that I could um, preserve some of the images and things that I'd shared on there before kind of not using the service that that much anymore um but the actual the troves of information that they have on you is astounding when you have it and you look at it and understand it it's it's is bizarre yeah it, it is really i have done it and it did freak me out as well and it freaked me out even more when i suspect that that's not everything they have i suspect they have a lot of extra data analysis from that raw data that they don't even share yeah, that's that's a really good point actually. Ex extra extrapolations and um, extra categories and all these sorts of things that might be useful for them within the advertising context, I guess. But also, um, there's been historical um, uh, research projects done on us as individuals um, within the platform, not just Facebook, but all sorts of different platforms where they are, you know, experimenting on on thousands of users um, just because they are able to it's strange because you have a, a experiment could be you know just changing the color you know it, you know in in developer world it might be um, an a b test and we're testing whether people enjoy this colored blue slightly better than the color blue we originally use and and we can see that how they react to it essentially but you can also do things like um, withholding likes and then producing likes later on, which was an example from Instagram, uh, one of the experiments they did. And on Facebook, equally, they did something around um, promoting um, negative 
emotions through the, the information that they showed you within your feed and to see if you would post negatively uh you know the, the sentiment analysis would be more negative uh, and manipulating people's behavior that way um, and this study in particular that you're citing was incredibly unethical because they didn't take into account for instance they didn't exclude people who might be suffering from depression or bipolar disorders people who are really having a bad time and if you you might be you know tipping the balance even worse for them if you were encouraging all these negative emotions that was absolutely terrible yeah and it, it's just a, such a shame because you could make people's lives so much better as well so it's it's interesting that um, even if you would do an experiment like this and you thought that that was a good thing to do and you considered you know, some of the things you were saying about types of different people who might be um, grossly affected by it um, in a detrimental way, why wouldn't you just try and produce a positive sentiment for people? <laughs> you know, that would be my kind of obvious uh, counterpoint, you know, yeah, making people's lives worse. <laughs> I mean, there there are many reasons why that happens. I think one of them is just like the economic incentive. Because there's an economic incentive um, to collect as much data as possible, then that leads to all kinds of um, bad consequences in which data just gets collected and sold to the highest bidder. So that's one example. But also, just it turns out that negative emotions are more, like are more effective at hooking people. <laughs> to social media and positive emotions. And that's why we see fake news being more viral than true news. It's, it's a shame because it's a fair comment and something that we psychologically are aware of, um, or some people are psychologically aware of, but it's a shame that we still can't use positive, you know, given that fact, we need to fight against that stuff with positive information, you know, or positive ways of working or, or more useful, you know, it, it, it's, it's a shame that we are always fighting the economics of the situation, which is actually to be negative to us. Um, so do you think social media and privacy are kind of incompatible in that way? No, not necessarily. I think social media as it's designed at the moment, and certainly with a business model based on personal data, but that's just a business model. It could be very different. So if we paid Facebook $10 a year or a month or whatever it was, um, then we could design a very different platform in which different kinds of interactions are encouraged and in which nobody is profiting from your data. So nobody is collecting it and nobody wants it. And, you know, you made a good point about it's a shame how personal data that could maybe be used for good is being used um, in ways that are so destructive. But I think that's just the nature of personal data. It's like sooner or later, even when it's used for something good, if it's kept sooner or later, somebody will abuse it. So, you know, I found it interesting that you agreed with the book so much because many people find it very radical for me to call for the end of the data economy. This is the first book that actually says that, but it says, you know, this is so toxic that we should just end it. But really, I mean, that's only surprising because we are seeing it from the perspective of, of the status quo in which we are already used to this kind of trading. But if we were to ask somebody from the 1950s, hey, we have this idea and we have this business model and this is going to work like this, do you think that's a good idea? They would probably feel absolutely horrified. It's like, no, how, what, what do you mean? Are you going to sell lists of 
the people who have been victims of rapes and that's going to be the basis of like the business model that's awful people should profit from that so what's radical and what's really extreme is having a business model that depends on the massive and systematic violation of rights privacy is a right for a very good reason and that is because personal data ends up getting abused so it's a bit like imagine like you are we argued that you know it would be better if all our houses didn't have doors and didn't have locks because that way you know people could come in and they could share their stories and they could leave you nice food and they could like i don't know do nice things for you and of course some neighbors might do that but eventually at some point somebody will misuse it and somebody will enter your home and rob something and we need to have locks in place and then we need to unlock it for the right people and the right circumstances and the right purposes mm. i like one of the, the um, examples you give in the book of one of these practices which is um reading through people's mail right like having a postman read through your letters would be a legal offense but you have all your emails with Google or whoever, and they are able just to look at that information verbatim. You know, um, there is there is no way you can not let them do that. Um, if you are sending information to someone who has a Google account or a you know, similar account, or you have one yourself, that is just what you are literally doing. Um, and yet we don't send these people to jail or we don't... Um, uphold them to a standard that is um, t to allow us to have that privacy, to, to lock those doors, essentially, um, to withhold some information that we don't want to give to a service, but we actually do want the service itself. Like, I'm paying, like, I would like to pay for email, which doesn't have spam, and that's it. Like, I don't need you to, to, to do all the other stuff. I'll give you some money. Yeah, Fine. exactly. And, you know, at, at some point in the book, I argue that in 2013, Google was already an incredibly big and very successful company and earning lots of money. And a journalist in Forbes magazine figured that if users were to give Google just $10 a year, Google would earn the same thing as it was earning that year. And I think most Google users, you know, who are not in a position of extreme poverty would be very happy to pay $10 a year for Google Maps and Gmail and Google Search and all of these things. And we don't need to be sold for that. And we don't, our democracies don't need to be eroded. And all these bad consequences are really so unnecessary. And some people think, well, you know, maybe you're just exaggerating. Maybe the consequences of personal data aren't so bad. But if you look at history, like privacy breaches have indirectly killed more people than um, other threats like terrorism. So I tell this story in the book about the Second World War. And one of the first things that the Nazis did when they invaded a city was to visit the registry because that's where the data was held and they were looking for the Jewish population. So there was a study that compared the European country that had most data on people which was the, the Netherlands, because there was this person called Lenz, uh, who was a fan of statistics and who wanted to design a system that would follow people from cradle to grave, versus the country in Europe, uh, which had collected the least amount of data consciously for privacy reasons, and that was France. Since 1872, they had made the decision not to collect data about religious ancestry or affiliation. And the result was that 
the Nazis were able to find about 73% of the Jewish population in the Netherlands and kill them. And in France, they found 25% of the Jewish population and killed them. The difference between those two countries were hundreds of thousands of lives. And there's this particular story about the, um, the registry in Amsterdam. The Dutch realized that registries were very dangerous. So in 1943, a resistance cell tried to destroy the records in the registry. They went into the building, they set fire to the records, and they had a deal with the firemen because they, were, they, they knew some firemen who were sympathetic to the resistance. And the deal was that the firemen would try to get there as late as possible to allow the fire to do its job, and they would use much more water than necessary to destroy as many records as possible. Unfortunately, they were very unsuccessful. Not only were they found and killed, but also they only managed to to um, destroy about 15% of records and 70,000 Jews were found and um, killed. And the Dutch had made two mistakes. One is that they had collected too much data. And the second one was that they didn't have an easy way to delete data quickly in the event of an emergency. And we are making both of those mistakes at a scale never seen before. Yeah, uh, I mean, those are shocking accounts, um, as is everything from from that period, really, to be honest. Um, it's funny because it's, it's one of those arguments that um, comes up where, you know, it's if you've got nothing to hide, then what's the problem sort of situation. But as you've stipulated, it might not be now, it might be in the future, it might be somewhere else, it might be uh, some organisation that you haven't met yet and it might be your next boss um, and all these individuals all these uh, organizations or these governments might be able to do something to you based on the things that you have put out there in the world you know um, that digital kind of exhaust that you've created and it might not be something that affects you right now and I think in the book you mentioned you might be you know uh, some white guy and you don't really think about these things um but you know there are people out there who are thinking very seriously about these things and it affects their lives greatly already um right now and it might affect yours at any time in the future and indeed your children and their children exactly and you might have something to hide and you just don't know about it so for instance you might be developed parkinson's or alzheimer's and companies can be trying to infer this just by the way you swipe your finger on your phone. And you might not get your job because a company might suspect that you will develop Parkinson's disease in the next 10 years. And that information might actually be wrong. <laughs> You're still going to suffer the consequences of that um, privacy loss. Mm. So this, I mean, this we talk a lot about AI on this podcast, uh, the Machine Ethics podcast. Um, hello, if you're just tuning in, <laughs> it feels like a radio station. It's, <laughs> it's definitely not. And I wonder, because obviously um, a lot of the machine learning techniques rely on huge amounts of data. And obviously data is all sorts of things and doesn't necessarily have to be um, people's data. It could be weather data and atmospheric data and um, pressure and how many drops of rain there are and all sorts of different types of data, you know, how many rats are in this area i don't know like there are t different types of data obviously but machine learning re 
often relies on, on lots of data. So is there some sort of kind of issue with a lot of these techniques that we're using at the moment and the the kind of requirement for there to be data to use in order for them to to be successful and, uh, and um, accurate, I guess? That's a great question. So there are many responses. One response is that most of the data that we have and that we need and that is most useful is actually not personal data. So it's data about the weather, data about the quality of the air, data about all kinds of things that doesn't have to do with us. And recently somebody told me that their business calculated that only 6% of data is personal data. I haven't actually uh, verified this, but um, this would be something interesting to look at what exactly is the proportion. So that's one thing. And in fact, if you look at like the most incredible advances in machine learning, they haven't been done with personal data. So there are things like, you know, AlphaGo, Zero, uh, which actually used its own data, um, playing itself millions of times to get so good at the game Go, or it's things like trying to find a possible antibiotic and looking at molecules. So it's not, and, and you know, it might not be a coincidence that the most incredible advances haven't been with personal data because personal data sometimes expires very quickly. So for instance, how many times have you liked something on Facebook and then a year later you actually don't like it anymore, but you never go back and click on like. So in that way you move places, you change in all kinds of ways that makes personal data um, very quickly out of date. Another answer is that even with personal data, we can use it in ways that um, are safe or in fact we can deal with things that we would deal with as personal data without it being personal data. So what I'm referring to here is a technique like differential privacy in which uh, you never collect the personal data in the first place. You collect it, if you collect data with a differentially private algorithm, um, there's no kind of original database that can be breached or leaked. Um, you insert mathematical noise into the database from the start so that no individual can suffer uh, privacy losses. Yeah, and, and the, uh, I guess just to clarify, that technique is, is about making inferences from lots of data. So you couldn't necessarily make an inference about a particular person, but you could make an inference about um, these million people um, without them having kind of being exposed, if you like, to having their personal information kind of instantly available or whatever. Exactly. So a nice way to explain this, I got this example from Aaron Roth, is say you wanted to figure out how many people voted for um, Trump or for Brexit in, in a particular city. And normally you would just call up a few thousand people and ask them directly, but then you have a phone number and an answer. So that's very dangerous. If you do it in a differentially private way, you call them and you ask them to flip a coin. If it lands on heads, they tell you the truth. If it lands on tails, they flip a coin again. If it lands on tails, they tell you the truth. And if it lands on, um, I'm sorry, if it lands on heads, they tell you the truth. And if it lands on tails, they tell you a lie. So that means that 75% of your answers are true. 25% of your answers are a lie, and you can statistically adjust that such that you get very accurate statistical responses to your questions, and the person never tells you what the coin, how the coin lands, they just give you an answer. So every person has plausible deniability. They, every person can say, can say, no, I didn't vote for Brexit or I didn't vote for, for Trump. Yeah. 
unless you're also tracking them with a a, a, a tracking device in their house or on their phone yeah. at the same time. <laughs> well, even, even then, I mean, if nobody knows how the coin landed except that person, you never collect that data in the first place. Yeah. I know. I'm just being silly. Yeah. So you, so you, some, you, so in that case, you get somewhat uh, less accurate data. But if you've got lots of it, it doesn't really matter. Like you're saying, it kind of um, it levels itself out essentially because you already know what the probability space is in that in those answers. Exactly. And then the final response to the concern about um, AI needing lots of data is that it's conceivable that in the future AI will need less data. So what we want to build with AI is something that's actually intelligent, not that only kind of mimics intelligence. And if you take a child, um, it's incredible how quickly they learn. So if you teach them something, you, you only have to teach them sometimes once or maybe twice, and they can immediately um, reproduce that. And not only that, but they can apply it to other circumstances and new circumstances. And machine learning is, can't do that, or, or, or it needs a lot of data instead of like one or two data points, it needs like thousands or, or hundreds of thousands or, or millions. And there's an argument to be made that um, there, there are algorithms that are so kind of rudimentary that no matter how much data you throw at them, it's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to make them intelligent, just the amount of data. And as we build better algorithms that are actually more intelligent, they will need less data. Um, yeah, I mean that that is the, that's like the frontier of AI at the moment. I guess is um, doing more with less. Exactly. So in the book, you there's a a a chapter on what we can do. You know the types of things that you would advise a a person, an average person who has devices and um, is concerned with these things. And maybe um, there's a whole list of things that people you you recommend um, to do practically, but also about communicating with people and talking to them about, um, you know, your concerns and giving back those people um, that autonomy to make those decisions, um, which is really, really useful. So we can go into that, but I'd just like to say, go and read the book. Um, but also there, there isn't actually specific guidance for people designing this stuff. So I was wondering did you have kind of a secondary list which would be like you know when making technology when designing when developing what kinds of things should you be thinking about uh, in order to hopefully preserve some of this um toxic data issue you know preserve the the right of privacy yeah so i do have a small section on what you can do if you're in tech and part of it is just thinking differently so many times people in tech think about what they want to build and then they think, well, once it's built, I'll add like privacy concerns and ethics into it. And that's just not the way it works because ethics and privacy have to be baked in from the start. Otherwise, if you just try to add them on it later, it just leads to a disaster. So for instance, if you have the wrong business model, then no matter how much ethics you try to add onto it, it's just gonna fall apart. So you have to think about these things from the start and uh, take into account all stakeholders, try to imagine possible bad consequences. And then very specifically, I recommend that people talk to either an ethics consultancy or academics, and I recommend some academics that they can follow, or talk to an ethics committee. There are 
places in which um, ethics committees offer their services to startups. So one place, um, full disclosure, I, I'm, I'm working on that ethics committee, is Digital Catapult. Um, this is a UK initiative in which um, startups get, get all kinds of help, like computational power and all kinds of other perks, but they also get to talk with an ethics committee uh, who tries to help them build a more ethical product. So find, find opportunities for ethics. Don't leave it as something that you will do at the end. Yeah, and, and uh, just a plug for myself, I guess. Um, we also have Ethical by, Do um, by Design, which is the consultancy that I run, um, which also deals with groups of people uh, like yourself um, to, to make those recommendations to organisations um, when they're making, hopefully, you know, at the inception through the making process so that we can cover all those ethical questions. That's my hope. And... Um, we have different people from different backgrounds um, like yourself. So, you know, use those things, go and talk to those people, um, do some research, read some books um, and and make better products. Are, are we are we just saying that you, your, your book is quite stark about the digital economy? Um, and I was just wondering if there is light at the end of the tunnel, you know, if there is a a vision that you have where things could be better and, and what kind of thing that look like? Yeah. So one more thing about uh, for, for people who work in tech is don't have a business model that depends on personal data. That's just a pass. It, 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 it's going to end and your business is not going to thrive in the long run. It's like opening a, a business uh, that is based on oil right now. That's the past. And if you look at, for, for instance, Scandinavian oil companies, uh, they're veering towards clean sources of energy. And that's the smart thing to do because that's the future. So the future is really more privacy, not less. So don't have a business model that depends on personalized ads or personal data. And yes, I definitely see light at the end of the tunnel. I think we are going through a civilizing process similar to the one, to the one we went through in the offline world in which we made rules to make life more livable and more easily bearable. So we don't have to go to the supermarket and ask ourselves whether the food we're eating is going to poison us. And we don't have to get on an airplane and wonder whether the security is good enough. We have standards for that. And just like we have standards for that, we should have standards for cybersecurity and for privacy. So we need regulation. There's no other way around it. We need to ban trades in personal data. We need to ban personalized content. We need to implement fiduciary duties so that our data can only be used for our benefit and never against us. But for that to happen, we need people to pressure and to rebel against the data economy. And so what ordinary people can do is find opportunities for privacy. Talk about privacy, read about privacy, tweet about privacy, um, don't expose others, so don't take pictures and then upload them without asking for people's permission. Whenever you receive a message that is clearly violating someone's privacy because you know, they're making fun of them or there's a, an image that is of them that they don't want it to be out there or that they are exposing their private messages or something, don't forward it and express how much you disagree with that action. And choose privacy-friendly options. So instead of using Google search, use DocDocGo. It's great and it doesn't track you. 
instead of using WhatsApp, use Signal. It's fantastic and it's not based on a personalized um, data model. Instead of using Gmail, use ProtonMail. Um, there are many alternatives out there that are just as easy, just as free and just as good and that are not based on your personal data. Great. Um, so if you want to contact me, it's Benjamin Byford at protonbpm.me, I think. Um, so a quick plug for them because, yeah, we just need people to to get on board with the 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 privacy economy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, something else. This new era. <laughs> something else that people can do is to ask companies for your data and ask them to delete your data. It, it's very important because if rights are only on paper and never come to life, then they're, it's as good as if they, they, weren't, they weren't there. So when you ask a company for data, you show them that you care about it, you make them work for it, and if they don't comply with your request, you create a paper trail such that when regulators look at that company, they'll see that they're not using people's data with their consent and they can get fined and they can uh, pay the consequences for that. So it's really important to ask companies, demand companies that they respect your right to privacy. Um, so the last question we usually have on the podcast is, um, Clarissa, what excites you and what scares you about this technolo technological future? And I guess we've covered some of that already, uh, but I was just wondering to give you opportunity to uh, kind of paint uh, the, the, the fearful and the really exciting and, and um, glorious things that you can see coming coming through. What scares me is that I can see that we're building the perfect architecture for the perfect totalitarian state, a totalitarian state that cannot be challenged because as soon as you start to even think about organizing or rebelling against it, they know it before even you do maybe, and they squash it. So we are in a very dangerous moment in which if we continue to walk in this direction, we will end up with a very scary circumstance in which an authoritarian regime can take over and be extremely powerful, more powerful than anything we've seen in the past by far. So that's a scary uh, circumstance. The pretty, pretty good. It's pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> the optimistic view is that we're still in time to take back control of our data. Much of the world is still not digitized. Um, rules are changing in the right direction. People are becoming more aware. And I can see a future in which we we have cutting edge technology, but we have technology that we own, that works for us, that we don't work for it, that we're not slaves of it. That, you know, when, when I use my car, I want my car to take me somewhere and I want it to do what, what I wanted, you know, what I wanted to do. I don't want it to, to spy on my conversations, to see what music I, I hear, to track me and then sell the data to people who will use it against me. And I think that future in which we own the things that we use and they work for us, we don't work for them, is very realistic and it's very possible to bring it into reality. We just have to be very clear about what we want and how do we get there. Awesome. Um, so thank you very much for talking to me. Um, if people want to follow you, um, find out about you by your book, how can they do that? They can follow me on Twitter um, my handle is Carissa Velis. I also have a website with uh, just my name, carissavelis.com, and they can find the book in their favorite bookshop. Blackwells is my favorite bookshop, so I will start looking there. Uh, but it's also on Waterstones, Amazon, and all the rest. Yep, awesome. 
Um, so thanks very much and um, I'll see you in the private future. Thank you, Ben. Thanks again to Carissa. This is the end of the podcast. Um, I'm sorry about the bad audio issues. We're having this problem where I haven't found a perfect solution for recording people remotely when the internet is troublesome or they haven't got a good mic or there's too much compression, that sort of thing. In this episode, the audio coming through from the internet was quite bad, quite bitty. So um, really amazingly, Carissa was able to record on her iPhone, but then uh, at some point the iPhone was moved or something happened. So it gradually got quieter and had to boost the signal. So it starts degrading over the episode a little bit. I tried to do my best. I really enjoyed Carissa's book. Um, there's only one thing really that I took issue with it, that, you know, working some of these companies, um, I've had experience with security and in the book she calls out that maybe tech companies could do more about security and securing data, and obviously they can, but that she says that maybe they aren't, uh, they're, they're purposely not doing enough. And I don't think that's necessarily the case, having worked in those environments. Um, we, you know, we try and do our best um, personal data as being toxic is a really, really interesting concept and just kind of really hits home really easily about what this is all about, what we should not be doing essentially. Um, and I think that's a really uh, great way of kind of labeling that stuff. Um, you know, be careful with it, it's toxic. And I really find this fascinating that there, there's this digital economy, data economy, and that maybe that is coming to an end. You know, calling out these large corporations or practices of um, passing around data and selling data and that sort of horrible practices. And maybe that we can find a way to get past that, move on and, um, you know, not take people for granted and, and be nice. So that would be good, wouldn't it? So thanks again for listening. If you'd like to contact us, um, go to machine-ethics.net and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you very much.